We are finishing our series this week called Unlocking Freedom in Your Life. We've been talking for quite a while about getting free because when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. This week, we're going to talk about freedom in your future. Basically, we're talking about free from the future sins or future mistakes that we will make. I believe that there are three primary ways that Jesus sets us free from sin. The way that we talked about at the beginning of this series is we're set free from the guilt and shame of our past sins, and that is taken away by the blood of Christ shed on the cross. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that price. He redeemed us. We're not just forgiven. We're redeemed. Forgiven is just when you release the debt. Redeemed is when it's paid for you. And Jesus paid the debt for us. The justice of God required the debt to be paid. Jesus redeemed us. He paid the debt. So we're set free from our past sins. And then several weeks ago, we talked about being set free from other people's sins. One of the things that can affect people very, very powerfully and very dramatically is the evil that has happened to them and the evil that has happened to those that they love. So the the darkness of this world hits us and we have to get free from other people. People's sins. Very, very important. And this week we're going to be talking about getting set free from repeating the same mistakes, from being stuck in the same rut. We're going to be free from our future sins. So that's what we're talking about today, getting free in that respect. Now, this is not a trick question, but up north, people might think it is. Here's the question Do you want to be blessed by God? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You do want to be blessed by God. That's not selfish. Even if you're Scandinavian, you can want to be blessed by God. So (laughs) I've got a blessing for you from Acts chapter 3, verse 26. This is after the healing of the crippled beggar and Peter is talking and here's what he has to say in Acts chapter 3, verse 26. Just a little piece of this dialogue. When God raised up his servant, that is Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Do you want to be blessed by God? There is a blessing which is being turned from your wicked ways. Now, is that a blessing or is that a curse? It's a blessing. Remember, last week we talked about the devil's schemes, and one of his schemes would be to make you think that a good thing is a bad thing, and a bad thing is a good thing. Here's a good thing. It's a blessing from God to be turned from your wicked ways, to no longer be doing harm and damage and bringing evil into this world, but now you get to be someone who brings light and truth and goodness into this world, turned from your wicked ways. It's a blessing, and then you get to be a blessing. So we want to be blessed by being turned from our wicked ways. Very, very wonderful, incredible blessing. Now, did you know that Christians are supposed to live right? It's true. Christians are supposed to live, live right. People outside the church, non-Christians, they understand that. And they have very high standards for Christians. You know, they, they call Christians hypocrites and things like that. They expect them to live at a very high standard. You know, I've told people, hey, we take everybody. If somebody wants to come know Jesus, we take them. We don't check credentials. We don't make sure they're at a certain level of, you know, uh, functional living. If, if somebody wants to come follow Jesus, they're in. The standards aren't that high. You just have to want to be forgiven and try to follow Jesus. That's, that's where it's at. So we get a variety of people. Also, though, Christians have very high standards for other Christians. 
And there's more hypocrite talk. There's Christians who won't go to a church because it's full of hypocrites. You know, well, those people aren't good enough at being Christians for me to hang out with them. It's a little harsh. And then, of course, when people look at themselves, all of a sudden the standards start to drop, right? Standards are very high for other people. But when we look at ourselves, it can be the situation where the standards begin to drop and there's justification and all these things. I'm not that interested in what various different groups of people think. What does God expect? That's the question. What does God expect from his people? Let's go to 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 5. But you know that he appeared, that is, Jesus appeared, so that he may take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So, that's pretty strong. It's going to get stronger in the next few verses. But what uh, John is saying here is that Jesus came to take away our sins. And he's not just talking about the sins of the past, the guilt and shame of the past. He's talking about going on sinning. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. He's talking about living in error in the future. This is talking about getting free from future sins. We don't keep on sinning because we learn the ways of God. We know Him, we see Him, and we walk in the light as He is in the light. Let's keep reading verse, uh, verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. That's pretty strong, isn't it? God expects his people to learn his ways and live them out. That's what God expects. So, what do we do with this? Did you know that you can succeed with this? That we can actually walk in God's ways? Now, I'm not saying we don't ever stumble. Sometimes we stumble. But we can be walking in the ways of God. That's essentially what we're going to be getting at today. But let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is a precursor to this, the series we'll start next week which we're calling The Effective and Productive Life, Eight Biblical Steps to Fulfilling Your Full Potential from Second Peter chapter 1. But this is the precursor to that, Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Did you know you have everything you need for life and godliness? You have everything you need to live a godly life. Did you know that? Did you already have that? Someone should have told me that sooner. I I could have been doing so much better. His divine power has given us everything we need. So his divine power, not our willpower, but his divine power. Very important. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, through his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So this is very significant. We escape by participating in the divine nature. So we've got everything we need. We can do it. But every Christian, whatever they say, deals with the struggle to live a godly life instead of 
doing the wrong things. Every Christian deals with the struggle of trying to live a godly life. When I was a kid, there was Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, Me and my brother would get up, we'd run, we'd put a a blanket on the floor, we'd turn on a TV and watch Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner, and it was great, Hong Kong Fooey, I just loved Saturday morning cartoons. And one of the, the gags in the cartoons was whoever was in a moral dilemma, a little angel would pop up on one side and the little devil would pop up on the other side and they'd be giving conflicting advice. And isn't that a real picture of how we live our lives? We've got one thing pulling us one way. We've got another thing pulling us the other way. It's just the human condition. It's part of what we experience, every single one of us. No one is immune to that. We all deal with being pulled one way or the other, with this struggle to live a godly life. But people respond to this struggle in a variety of different ways. I've got a few possible ways to respond to this struggle. These are all bad ways. Don't pick any of these. Let's reject these ways of responding to the struggle. First way here I have listed is responding with apathy. I've heard people say, well, we all sin thousands of times every day anyway, and I'll just get forgiven, so it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to let her go and not work too hard at this. Apathy. What does God expect? He expects us to learn His ways and put them into practice, not be apathetic about it. Another way people respond to this is with hopelessness. Try and try and try and fail and fail and fail and get discouraged and give up. Hopelessness. People sometimes respond with legalism, where basically there's two tools in the toolbox of legalism, shame and willpower. That's it. (laughs) There's nothing else. And so feeling really bad about doing wrong things and then trying to do everything exactly right. Well, if my coffee's like that, it's probably okay because then I, that, that's, but this can't be of God, you know, and, and all these little details and everybody's ashamed of doing something wrong and then we're just trying as hard as we possibly can to do the right thing. That's legalism. My last bad option here that I've got listed, and there's many other ways that people respond to this struggle, is to pretend, to put on a front to assume everyone else is faking it anyway, so I'll just fake it too. Pretending. There's the struggle. Don't get caught in apathy or hopelessness or legalism or pretending. We want to be blessed by having God turn us from our wicked ways so that we're not agents of darkness, but we're ambassadors for Christ, bringing light into this world, bringing goodness into our families and our schools and our workplaces. That's what we want. Let's look at Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. The Apostle Paul deals with this issue in a very powerful way. It's very important to read chapter 7 and chapter 8. If you only read chapter 7, you might not realize that chapter 8 is available. So let's look at both of these. And we've got essentially, I kind of broke this section of Scripture up into uh, a few different categories But basically, we're going to look at Romans 7, 14 through 8, 17. We're going to talk about the struggle. We're going to talk about forgiveness, true freedom, and then the way of the Spirit. So let's look at this section of Scripture, starting in Romans 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, 
sold as a slave to sin. So we already see the tugging, the pulling of two directions. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. What Paul is saying is he sees the goodness of the ways of God, but he's not living that way. He wants to, but it isn't working out. And so he sees that the ways of God are good, but he's having trouble apprehending and grabbing hold of it. So the law is good. He's not rejecting the law. He's saying, I just have a, I've got a sin problem. I don't have a God problem. I got a sin problem. I I trust God. I just need to overcome these things. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. We'll see this theme throughout this passage of the separation between the person, their identity, and the sin and shame over here. That's the great power of the gospel and the cross of Christ is to separate the person from the sin. It's not who we are, but separated. So Paul is saying it is sin living in me. Now, of course, that's still no excuse, right? You know, you go, well, it wasn't me. It's sin living in me, so I can do whatever I want. No, that doesn't work. Verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, the non-born-again part, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Again, a reiteration of this separation of the individual And the sin. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work in the members members of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Have you been in this situation that's described. Oh, God is good. Oh, God's ways are good. What am I doing over here? (laughs) Why am I here? I would rather be there, but here I am. I don't know how to get over to God's ways. I'm stuck in my ways. Again, this is a universal Christian issue. We all deal with trying to get free from the old things and grab hold of the new things. So, what do we do now? Let's read the next few verses. Who will save me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, who's going to save you? Jesus Christ is going to save you. He's got a plan for forgiveness of sins and then freedom in the future. Jesus will save you from this huge predicament, from this terrible problem. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How did we get to that? Didn't this sound kind of negative? And then all of a sudden now, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason is, is because sin and our identity have been separated and Jesus has taken care of the sin part and it leaves us whole. 
and complete. There is now no condemnation for those who are, who are in Christ Jesus. And we want to now take it to the next step, not just being free from our past sins, not just being content with having been forgiven from those mistakes, but now we want to grab hold of the ways of God and be able to walk with God in His ways in the future and not have to repeat those mistakes and then go back to that same struggle and forgiveness and then sin and forgiveness and sin and forgiveness and that same cycle. We want to break free from the cycle. We want to get out of that. We want the marriage to be healed and brought into something good. We want all the different parts of our life to be Forgiven and healed and brought into a good place and then we live free in the future, making progress and building our house on a solid rock, a firm foundation. So true freedom. Let's keep reading. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So there's a law of sin and death that where there is sin, there follows death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that price of death on the cross that we could be set free from the law of sin and death. And that is the law of the spirit of life. That Jesus came to set us free from the law of sin and death. So we must grab hold of the law of the spirit of life. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. So here we see... Sin is condemned, but the individual is made whole. Too many times we think of our identity as I'm the one who made that mistake. I'm the one who failed in that way. And we can't separate those two things out and see that God can condemn sin in sinful man, but leave the individual whole. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. So the law, for example, the Ten Commandments. How many people know you're not supposed to lie? It's in the Ten Commandments. How many people know you're not supposed to steal? It's in the Ten Commandments. Not supposed to commit adultery. It's in the Ten Commandments. Not supposed to use God's name in vain. It's in the Ten Commandments. So, we know the Ten Commandments. I guess we never make any of those mistakes ever again because we know the Ten Commandments. What the law was powerless to do, so just because you've been told don't bear false witness, just because you've been told don't lie, doesn't mean that magically now you have the capacity to live a life of truth. Because the sinful nature can override your knowledge of the ways of God and pull you in a different direction. So what the law was powerless to do, that is to get you to actually follow it, not just know it and then do something different. It was powerless to change you. God did, that is, change you. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So now we have a transition that we need to make from the law of sin and death to the law of the spirit of life and to be set free. Now here, verse four, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, that means that we live it out, that we actually do it. So the law was powerless to change us, but there is power from God to change us. And here it is, second half of verse 4. Not living according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. When we live according to the Spirit, then there is power to be set free from our future sins 
And we don't have to be slaves to the sinful nature. We don't have to follow in those ways, but we can walk in the ways of the Spirit. Let's keep reading verse 5. Let's look deeper into this way of the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Don't try to separate your thought life and your behavior. I mean, hey, if your thought life is bad, don't live it out. But the fullness of walking with God is not thinking the wrong thoughts, but trying to do the right things. It's about having your mind set on the things of God. Having your mind come into a place where you're, you're in line with God. Verse 6. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Which is better, death or life and peace? Let's go for life and peace, okay? So let's believe that we can get here and that we don't have to be stuck in death, having our minds set on the things that the sinful nature desires, but instead we can have our minds set on what the Spirit desires. Verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. That's a problem. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So that's a very powerful sentence there. But what Paul is saying is, We want to receive the Spirit of God, get the Spirit of God in our hearts, and then we'll start living out the ways of God naturally because we've got His Spirit in us. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Here's the deal. Mere theological ascension to the Holy Spirit is not enough. You need the indwelling of the Spirit to change your heart over time. It's not enough to answer the theological questions the right way. Yes, I believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen, Hallelujah. And then go on your merry way without the Spirit indwelling in you. Mere theological ascension is not sufficient. We need the power of God to clean our hearts, and to set our minds on His ways. I've seen God change my heart. I used to be a very unpleasant human being. I'm serious. Let me tell you, willpower did not change that. The Spirit of God changed that. The power of God changed that. I can't just try to be a good boy. You know, that works for a little while. And then in a weak moment, it all falls apart. But when your heart changes, and now you love the things God loves, now you care about the thing God cares about, now you see people the way God sees them, now you see the church the way God sees the church, now you see the unbeliever and the lost the way God sees them, all of a sudden you start falling in line with the ways of God. And it just happens. The fruit of the Spirit comes naturally, and we don't have to, by willpower, try to force ourselves To love people, it's just natural because we're in line with the Spirit. We don't have to force ourselves to have peace. It's there because we're in line with the Spirit. You need the indwelling of the Spirit to change your heart. Willpower won't do it. Knowing the Scriptures and being able to quote Scriptures won't do it. It's the power of God to change our hearts. Let's read the rest of this section. 
There's a bunch of promises and a bunch of obligations. 12 through 17, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Hallelujah. Now, if you only read chapter 7, you might think, well, we're all doomed. There's nothing we can do. Oh, the good I want to do, I don't do. But the evil I don't want to do, I keep doing. Oh, and then you get into hopelessness. Now, read chapter 8 too. Let's read 12 again. Now I distracted myself. Verse 12. (laughs) Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live by the Spirit, not by willpower, by the Spirit. Verse 14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. So a slave again to fear, fear of judgment, fear of the wrath of God, fear of being rejected by God. Perfect love casts out fear. And now we're in a place where we know we're a child of God and we're secure in who God has made us to be. And we can stand in that full of joy. You receive the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Why would you want to share in the sufferings of Christ? Because you see the need the way God sees the need. And you realize that the sacrifice you make to say hi to someone and encourage them is worth it. The sacrifice you make to sponsor a child or support a missionary or become a a small group leader. The sacrifice you make is worth it because you're not looking to please yourself and do what you want. You're looking to see how can I meet the needs that God wants to meet in this world and you're willing to sacrifice naturally because you see it as worth it. Did Jesus grudgingly go to the cross? He had his garden of Gethsemane where he got settled in and he saw it for what it was and then he leaned in. He leaned in. He was no victim. Get preaching. You run out of time. Here we go. What do we learn? So our last time through John 8, 31 and 32, we're not going to read those verses, but to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, then you are really my disciples. Step one to freedom, hold to my teachings. Then you will know the truth. Step two, and the truth will set you free. Step three, So step one, hold to the teachings. Live out the teachings of Christ. Then we will know the truth. You don't know the truth by hearing the teaching. You know the truth by putting it into practice and seeing what happens. And that's where we get to the place of freedom. So how do we get freedom from Romans 8 verse 9? What do we learn when we put this into practice? You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Controlled by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. This lives in you, often in, in, in different translations, is uh, translated dwells in. The root word for that is to live in a house. So if the Spirit lives in you like a person lives in a house. Last week we talked about Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Let's read that quickly. When an ir- Jesus is saying, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds that house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. You want the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Then when the darkness comes, there's a no trespassing sign up instead of an unlocked door. Bad things happen when the home is empty. 
Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So when we get past something, then the spirit, we welcome the spirit in, and now the darkness has no room to come in. What do we learn when we welcome the Holy Spirit of God in? We learn lots of things that we will not be able to sufficiently cover in two minutes. But here are some snippets. We learn that the gnawing of sin, the call of sin, the nagging of sin can be broken. That it isn't just living the rest of your life out of willpower, not doing the thing you know you're not supposed to, but you really, really want to do. But it can be broken. It can be eliminated. And it does not call you anymore. You can be free. We learn that the way we see people and the way we see the world changes when we welcome the Spirit of God in. We also learn that it takes a continual connection with God, a be being filled with the Spirit, because it can fade away and we can slip back into our old ways. We learn it can be a long process and that different strongholds in our life fall at different times. And so I welcome the Holy Spirit of God in and I conquer a particular area in my life and I see why it's foolishness. But there's another area where I don't get it yet. There's progressive chunks that we can grab hold of in our process of seeing things the way God sees things. We learn that willpower is still involved, but in a different way. Instead of in the middle of the temptation, just resisting the temptation and being pulled back and forth between willpower and the call of sin, that now I have to will to reach out to the Spirit of God and ask Him to give me wisdom and vision and His heart, and I have to will to reach out to God. We learn lots of different things as we endeavor to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. Do you want that blessing of being turned from your wicked ways? To not have to repeat the same mistakes? To not have to live a life of constantly being pulled to the darkness, but instead to be free? Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Willpower alone won't do it. As we mentioned, intellectual understanding alone won't do it. We need a drink of the Spirit of God. John 7, starting in verse 37. This is our closing scripture. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, So, he's at the state fair, he gets up on a big box, gets everybody's attention, and he starts shouting to the crowd, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. I imagine the people were like, what? By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus is giving basically a prophetic message of what God will do in the future. Let's go back to that verse 37. Let's make sure we get the order right. Jesus stood in a loud voice said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. My question to you is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for freedom in Christ? Are you thirsty to see the world through God's eyes? Are you thirsty Or are you apathetic or content to pretend or just going to force it to happen? Or are you thirsty? We can come to Jesus and drink. And then verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. 
Freely you have received, freely give. Until we receive of God, we have nothing to give. Until we receive of the love and peace and joy and patience of God, we don't have that to share. Until we have the heart of God, we don't have the light of Christ to share. We've got ideas, we've got theology, but we don't have streams of living water. So are you thirsty? I hope you learned some things today, but I also hope that right now you can get yourself a drink. Let's go to the Lord Jesus and let's take a drink. Lord Jesus, you know our situations. Though they're all different, we all have that battle, that tug, that pull between your ways and the ways of the sinful nature, between the light and the darkness. We're all pulled and conflicted and we struggle. Lord, willpower only takes us so far. Understanding only takes us so far. Jesus, you said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to you and drink. We're thirsty and we want your spirit in us. We want your heart in our heart to melt away our calluses, to melt away our our harsh thinking, to melt away our judgmental, critical thoughts, to melt away all of those things that pull us in the wrong direction, to melt away our unbelief, to melt away all of the darkness that is within us, and that your spirit would dwell in us. What an incredible promise that your spirit would dwell in us. Lord, we're thirsty. Give us something to drink and let streams of living water flow out. Let us receive fully. Lord, show us the things that need to be washed away. Show us the strongholds the enemy has. Show us the things that are pulling that we can be free from right now. And Lord, I pray that at this moment that bond to darkness would be broken and that the gnawing and nagging of the call to sin would be broken in Jesus' name. And Lord, let your spirit come in, in fullness and in power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.